we move from the Dead Sea Scrolls and to talking about Ruth, a story of faithfulness and redemption. Uh, for the next five weeks, we're going to turn our attention toward two books of the, na- of the Bible that are named for women. Today, Ruth, and then in two weeks from today, we're going to pick up with Esther. Both of these books are incredible because they are both stories of faithfulness and redemption. They both have these wonderful winding plot twists that make the reader sort of stop and take note and wonder, so who or what is it that's actually being redeemed and by whom? Who's actually doing the redeeming? And so you you go back and forth wondering who is the agent of redemption. And so it's going to be fun to watch in both of these stories how this works out. Both books uh, are also quite interesting because they say very little in Ruth, says very little, or there's no mention of God at all in Esther, and yet God's presence is not only assumed, it's actually incredibly palpable as you read the stories. Um, As Christians, we uh, are accustomed to thinking of Jesus Christ as the second Adam or the new Moses, and... um, of John the Baptist in particular as the Elijah figure coming through the wilderness, coming out of the wilderness. Um, But Ruth and Esther are sometimes in our canon and in uh, our theology are sometimes relegated to sort of secondary importance. And however, their message is very vital to understanding our hope of salvation. And so what we're gonna find in Ruth and Esther Uh, is that along with other Old Testament leaders, they will embody and do embody the spirit of the founders of of the Israelite nation. They are reflected of that just as much as Abraham is. As a matter of fact, we're going to find that Ruth reflects the new Abraham and that Esther, the new Moses. And so it's going to be great to see the parallels in these. So let's begin with Ruth. Um, The central theme that runs throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation um, and we find in the Lord's words to Abraham and that is, I will establish my covenant to be God to you and your descendants. And so Ruth is going to help us discover who can belong to God, who is in and who is out and how do we enter into God's covenant and how God works to redeem God's people. How does God do that? And, wh- and what role do we play in that? Ruth is this marvelous story. It's a, remember we talked about kaleidoscopes, I think, when we were talking about Revelation. Um, Ruth is a kaleidoscope narrative that really can be seen as an extended parable. And you know, in parables, um, we're always sort of invited to um, make a a connection with the characters, with one of the characters. And in Ruth, we're all sort of tempted to want to be or think of ourselves as the Ruth character because she's so wonderful. But in reality, when when we're going along here, in reality, we're probably more like Naomi. Our human nature is more like Naomi's. And so we need to sort of put ourselves in Naomi's shoes quite a bit. And we also know that in a lot of parables in the Bible, um, there are people who represent other things. God is the owner of the vineyard. Well, in um, Ruth, 
we could probably see Naomi as the people of Israel. And so keep that in mind as we go along. Because in parables, we'll see, and in this story as well, lots of symbolic names. There's a lot of wordplay and puns. It's really quite fun. And there's a repetition of words and phrases that really highlight the themes that flow throughout. Ruth is only 85 verses long, four chapters, and we're going to read it through the entire way, and I'll just stop and make commentary along the way. We're going to go through half of it today and half of it next week. So this will be one of those where we really do get to read the whole book, and it's going to be fascinating. Also, it's a very sophisticated piece of literature, and its artistry provides us with multiple layers of meaning, thus that kaleidoscope effect. And so because it has multiple layers of meaning, it makes its message timeless. It's just as relevant today as it was 5th century BC, if that's when it was read. We also don't know when it was written exactly. Its location, Ruth is located in our Christian Bibles, sort of chronologically, between the book of Judges and the book of Samuel, because we read in there, it's this bridge between this period, as Ruth says, when there was no king in Israel. So chronologically, in our Christian Bibles, that's where it is. In the Hebrew Bible, we find it among the writings, the uh, wisdom literature. It is one of the five scrolls read during religious festivals in Judaism, and it is read during Pentecost. Yes, the Jews have Pentecost. That's where we got it from, because Pentecost is, is called the Feast of Weeks. It falls 50 days after the beginning of Passover, and it celebrates both the end of the grain harvest, which is going to be very prominent in this story, and God's giving Torah, or the law, to Moses. So we find um, that it celebrates both, and so it's read during the Feast of Weeks. So let's begin reading Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. So we have a family of four leaving for famine for a country called Moab. The name of the man, symbolically we'll find out what, is Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. So we've got these four names, and we're going to find that they all have symbolic meanings. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. So this just means they were from a clan in, outside Bethlehem. So they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in, Judea, in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Okay, so this time when the judges ruled, we've already said it's before the kings. So um, in the, the time of the judges, when you read the end of Judges, it's a very violent time filled with war and... Um, so we find that the judges are ruling, and it's this era before 1 Samuel when, of course, Saul is anointed king. And it's, so the story is placed there between judges and 1 Samuel. Um, and what we're going to see is a dichotomy between the violence that was in Judges and the peaceful nature of the book of Ruth. And we find that... The story opens talking about a man named Elimelech. And the word El is God and Melech is king in Hebrew. And so his name literally means my God is king. He's living in the time when there is no king. God reigns as his king in his family and in his life. Other symbolic names, of course, his wife's name is Naomi, which means 
pleasant or sweet so we get an idea of what she might be like. His son, Mahalon's name means something like disease or sickly. And the other son, Kilion, it means to perish. So symbolically, we're not expecting great things for these boys. <laughs> it's foreshadowing that something bad is about to happen. And of course, we find there is a famine, a famine in Bethlehem. And again, the Hebrew word for Bethlehem, Beit, is house, and Lechem is bread. So what we find is there's a famine in the house of bread. There is no bread in the house of bread. It's very ironic. And so um, they must migrate or leave. And this is a very common theme in the Bible. Um, we find it in Genesis. Not surprisingly, in the story of Abraham. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for there was a severe famine in the land. We find this family is going to go and be in an alien country as well. And they go to Moab. And Moab is just about 60 miles southeast of Bethlehem, over here across the Dead Sea from the Jordan. It's home to those who had been perpetual enemies of Israel. Not only are they going to be aliens in a land, they're going to be aliens in a land of, uh, of enemies. Uh, and we find this reflected in the book of Numbers. Uh, this is when the, the uh, people are leaving, are leaving the wilderness and they're inhabiting the promised land. And so we read this, Moab was in great dread of the people. These are the Hebrews because they were so numerous. Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. They were felt very threatened and they were always warring with each other. So anytime we hear Moab in here, you can almost imagine the audience kind of hissing, you know. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons, which is good for a widow to have two sons in this time. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there for about 10 years, uh-oh, both Malon and Kilion also died, which we're not surprised, right, because they had such sickly, deadly names. <laughs> so they've both died. So that the woman, meaning Naomi, was left without her two sons or her husband. This is not good news, because alone without sons or a husband is not a good place for a woman in this era to be. Because without men, they have no access to financial security. They're pretty much property. They can't own property. They are totally dependent on male family members to take care of them. So if you don't have a son, you don't have a husband, you are in deep trouble. It, we're told the sons take Moabite wives. And we find um, in the post-exilic area that both Ezra and Nehemiah prohibit foreign wives. They, because they see that if... if um, they, uh, they married foreign wives. They typically could be led astray to worship other gods. So there was a strong prohibition against taking foreign wives in, in the post-exilic era. And so here's what we read. And I cursed them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, 
you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. So what we find in Ruth is that this is probably a subversive writing to that era in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's, it's sort of um, apologetic against that to say we need a corrective here because things have gotten a little out of hand on who we can marry and not marry because God told Abraham, you're blessed to be a blessing and you're to bless all the nations, including the Moabites. So this is probably a, seen as a corrective. It also redefines who is an insider and who is an outsider. Who is really a foreigner? Is it somebody? And who are we to determine who that is? So Naomi started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had consideration for his people and given them food. The, the term for food here is lechem or bread. So now there is bread once again in Bethlehem. So she's going to head back. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. This theme of returning is, is popping up and going back. But Naomi stops and says to her two daughters-in-law, she stopped, they're kind of headed down, you can see them going down the, the trail, and she stops and she thinks, this is not a good idea for them. And she says, go back each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and me. You've been great daughters-in-law. You've been good to my sons. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you in the house of your husband. They don't have husbands. She's saying is you need to go home and find a new husband because <laughs> that's the only way you're going to have security. Then she kissed them, and they all wept aloud, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. They loved her. So this theme of returning or turning or going back, um, it comes from the Hebrew root shuv, which means to turn or go back. Um, it also is used for the word repent a lot in the Old Testament, to shuv, to turn. And so even though uh, the people are not be ask, being asked to repent, of course the hearers would catch this in the back of their mind. Turning back toward home, toward God, toward Bethlehem, is one way to find salvation. So Naomi wants her daughters to find security, salvation. And so in her eyes, the only way for them to do that is to go back to their homes where they'll find security that they need in their mother's homes and find new husbands. Also, Naomi's character and personality is going to be turning and returning uh, from this symbolism of what her name means, sweet and pleasant. She turns from that to something else and back again, and we'll see what happens. She then heaps these two wonderful blessings um, on her daughters-in-law and she says may the Lord deal kindly with you may he, uh, God grant that you find security and so whenever blessings are spoken in Ruth here's something we're going to know going on from here on out if someone says a blessing it happens uh, they always come true and so she says may the Lord deal kindly the word kindly in Hebrew is hesed uh, which it also it has a deeper layer of, uh, layer of meaning. It's faithfulness, loyalness, kindness, loyalty. 
Um, it is considered an essential part of the nature of God. God is hesed, is faithful, is loyal to God's people. And it's frequently used to describe God's unmerited grace. So we hear this word coming through the text over and over again. And so Naomi's wish implies that both of her sons have had brides that have been kind and loyal to them and to her. They've gone beyond and above the call of duty. And she really is saying, I hope God is as loyal to you as you have been to my sons and me. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? This is kind of weird, isn't it, sounding? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying bizarre what she's referring to is the leverite law that supplies the needs of women who've lost their husbands since you're dependent on them you need a husband and here's what the law says in deuteronomy when brothers reside together and one of them dies and has no son the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger her husband's brother shall take her in marriage. So you, you marry the brother. It's for, it was law. And perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, meaning you need to make sure she gets a baby. <laughs> a son. And the firstborn son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the deceased brother. So that child will carry on the dead brother's name, properties, all of that so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So she's saying, I'm too old to have more sons. I can't give you any more sons. And even if I had a baby today, are you going to wait for him to grow up? This, it just doesn't make sense for you to stick with me. You need to go home. So they need to go home where they get a, a chance of finding a new husband. No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. So now Naomi, who is sweet, is becoming bitter. And she's blaming God for her troubles. As, and then they all wept aloud again. And Orpah says, you know, she's talking sense. <laughs> I think she's making perfect sense. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth, this word is, uh, means cleave, or we hear it a lot in like you hear marriages leave and cleave. This is the same word, cleave, cling, devach in, in Hebrew. Orpah's name means back of the neck. Uh, so she turns tearfully. So she, uh, Naomi gets the back of her neck. And she takes her advice and heads home. But Ruth clings to Naomi. And this clinging, of course, uh, we would mentally, the reader would think of uh, the marriage relationship in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings or cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. So we, we get this thought of marriage here. So Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And now Ruth makes this impassioned speech that nullifies everything uh, that Naomi has just said 
and it's a speech that we're all familiar with, one that we hear at weddings, but it's not a speech between a husband and a wife. It's a speech between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, and she says, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. And now she makes a vow. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, even if death parts me from you. Till death us do part. Does that sound familiar? So when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. And she literally doesn't. Throughout this, we don't hear any her talking to Ruth anymore for a while. We don't know if she's angry or if she's just resigned. Ruth won't leave nor forsake Naomi. She's very hesed, kind of like God, very faithful. She's committed herself to the Lord by whom she has sworn. Your God will be my God. It's almost like a, um, a conversion story. Uh, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. So she has now entered, if she hasn't already, through her commitment to her husband, she has entered the God of Israel's covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and is one of God's people. The Moabite is a child of God. And so Ruth's vow is understood as an act of faithfulness, loyalty, of hesed, showing this love and loyalty above and beyond what is considered normal. Any, we don't blame Op Orpah for turning back. It was a smart thing to do. Ruth is being extra faithful. So the two of them went on till they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. We don't know if they're stirred because they haven't seen him in a long time or because there's this foreigner in town. And the women exclaimed, Is this Naomi? It's been a long time since we've seen her. Is this Naomi? And she says, you can almost hear her, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me Mara because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Mara means bitter. Don't call me pleasant and sweet. Call me bitter because she's blaming God. God has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She left Bethlehem hungry. They didn't have any, they were empty of bread, but she was full of the life of her family. Now she's coming back to find fullness of bread, but she feels empty because she has no sons. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? It's all God's fault. So Naomi returned together with Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. We're hearing this repetition, Moab, 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 and you can just see the audience going, <laughs> They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, that's a curious thing to say. So Naomi turns bitter and blames God for this state of emptiness, and it's really not a reaction that we expect from the faithful of God, is it? Or is it? I mean, don't we act that way sometimes? We blame God? So Naomi is probably like Israel, maybe blaming God for some of their problems that may have been at the time. 
And Ruth's identity as a Moabite is highlighted. It's worth making us wonder, how is she going to be received among these new people? And what role is the barley harvest going to play in their lives? And so now Naomi and... Uh, now And now we see this aside from the narrator. The narrator of the story stops, and he's like, he's just talking to us. Nobody else in the book hears this. It's just us. Now, Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side. Hmm. A prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech. Ooh, this is sounding good, isn't it? There's a male heir. This is good. Whose name was Boaz. So this is something we know, but they don't. Just Naomi probably knows, but not yet. And Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi, so, so Ruth has gone to her mother-in-law, and she says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I might find favor. Maybe somebody will take pity on me and let me pick up the straw behind them. She, Naomi, said to her, go, my daughter. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. You go ahead. So she went. She came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. Now, gleaning in that day was the welfare system of the day. The poor were allowed to gather the grain behind the harvesters. Whatever kind of fell off the sides, uh, gleaners could come and pick up and take home. And so that was what Ruth was going to do. And so having no other source of income, Ruth decides to take action. She leaves Naomi home with her pity party, and she goes out to find support for her and her mother-in-law. And so we find this law about gleaning in Leviticus. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field. Don't take it all. Or gather the gleanings of your harvest, meaning whatever falls off the wagon or whatever, just leave it there. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. So whatever falls off the vine, don't pick it up. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. Ruth is both. I am the Lord your God. So, and then we find these words kind of as it happened. It just so happens. And when we hear this, we're supposed to think, God's back here. As it happened, hmm, Ruth came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. What a coincidence. Who was of the family of Elimelech, another coincidence, or is it? Just then, Boaz came from Bethlehem. How could, what an, another coincidence. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And of course, God will, because they said it. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, hmm, who does this young woman belong to? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers, the foremans, answered, She's the Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. <laughs> she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. So she came, and she has been on her feet from early this morning until now without resting for even one moment. Now, what we don't know is if she's been on her feet waiting for permission, <coughs> excuse me, or if they said yes and she's been working all day. I think we're thinking that maybe she's been working. And so we're wondering, how is Boaz going to respond? Is he going to go, a Moabite, out of here, 
Or is he going to say, okay, but maybe she just gets to pick up the little pieces. And the hearers and reader kind of wonder, is he going to kick her out? Will he take pity on her? And here we find the answer. So then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. It's the same thing that Naomi has called her. Do not go glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close. It's the same word for cling or cleave, just like, like uh, Ruth is doing to Naomi. Cling to my young women. I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Very hospitable. He's offering hospitality. Not to bother you. Sometimes this is translated as touch. Sometimes it's uh, translated as molest or harm. Uh, a young single foreign woman, especially a Moabite, would probably not be very safe gleaning in strange fields. And so it seems she has found a friend who's going to protect her. And so Boaz, who's described as a prominent man of standing and wealth, begins to assume the role of protector because he knows something that she doesn't know. He knows Naomi. Naomi is his kindred. And Ruth has come with Naomi. But she doesn't know this and shows she doesn't know why he's being so nice. She falls prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? And this is a pun on words. It, it could be translated that you should recognize me, one who is not recognized. So foreigners are not recognized, not seen, and yet you see me. How come this happened? And so Boaz answers, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. This sounds a whole lot like Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. She is doing just as Abraham did. And he goes on and says to her, here's a blessing. May the Lord reward you for your deeds and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. She's come to Bethlehem and she's finding refuge, hopefully. He's saying, may you find refuge. And then she said, may I continue to find favor in your sight, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. You're speaking to me as kindly as you would the people of your household. And I thank you for that. So Boaz offers a blessing to Ruth that she may be rewarded for uh, her good deeds by God, the God of Israel, under whose wings she has come for refuge. And we see this language in Psalm 91.4, you who live in the shelter of the Most High, and who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Um, the word for wings is, is also translated as cloak, and we're going to see this later. It's going to play very prominent next week. So Boaz speaks of God's protection of Ruth. He just assumes God's protection. And Ruth responds with a kind of a soft, well, why don't you put your, mouth, your money where your mouth is by saying, may I con continue to find favor in your sight? 
because that sort of reminds me of the story that the uh, study we did in James, where James says, which reflects, is very Jewish in nature, reflects Jewish custom. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of them says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill. Sounds like him talking to, to Ruth. And yet you do not supply their bodily needs? What good is that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. And here is Boaz's response. What's he going to do? Is he going to step up? At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some of this bread and dip your morsel in the sour wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he heaped up for her some parched grain, and she ate till she was satisfied, and she had some left over. He's very generous. When she got up to glean, this is the afternoon work, Boaz goes further, and he instructs his young men, let her glean even among the standing sheaves, not among the stuff that's fallen out. Let her go in the stuff that's already bundled, and do not reproach her. You must also pull out some handfuls for her from the bundles and leave them for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So he's given, earlier he instructs them not to harm Ruth. Now he goes further and orders them to allow, Naomi, uh, allow Ruth, pardon me, to glean beyond what is customary. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah. That's like almost a bushel of barley. That's a whole lot. And her mother-in-law, when she gets home, saw how much she had gleaned, and her tune changes. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. He will be blessed. We know that. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and she said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Aha. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. There's going to be a blessing even for the dead, she thinks. We don't know if it's the Lord's kindness or Hesed, the faithfulness that has not forsaken the living or the dead, or if it's Boaz's. Uh, we think that the ambiguity is probably intentional because it's probably both. Both the Lord and Boaz are not going to forsake the living and the dead. For God uses, as we know, God's agents to bring about blessings for God's people. And so Naomi begins to change her attitude, and she begins to turn from her bitterness and see hope for her future and Ruth's. And Naomi also said to her, guess what? This man is a relative of ours. He's one of our nearest kin. And the word for nearest kin is goel, which means redeemer. He is a kindred redeemer. There's only 85 verses in Ruth, but there are 23 uses of the word or the root of redeemer. This is a big theme here. In Israel, the law code, um, a goel is a designated member of the family, a brother or uncle or cousin who is expected to recover or ransom or buy back or rescue that which has been or is in danger of being removed from family control, either by poverty or war or death. 
And so this could also, it could re refer to either people or property or prestige, and we find this in Le Leviticus. If any of your kin fall into difficulty and sell themselves to an alien, meaning that they sell themselves into slavery because they're in su such debt, after they've sold themselves, they shall have the right of redemption. They don't have to stay a slave. One of their brothers may redeem them, or their uncle, or their uncle's son, or any one of their family, or if they prosper, they can buy themselves back. So at this point in the story, it's not real clear what Boaz is expected to redeem, but we know it can only mean good for Ruth and Naomi if things work out the way Naomi hopes they do. And so her excitement indicates that perhaps there's possibilities that we don't know about, and her attitude changes, and she begins to include Ruth in this um, vocabulary of, of this kinship circle when she speaks of he's our nearest kin. Now she's claiming Ruth is definitely her kin too. And then Ruth the Moabite said, he even asked me to stay close by his servants until they have finished all the harvest. And servants here means male servants, in which he really didn't because he said stay by the women. But so... Naomi's going to give her some advice, and she says, mm, it's better, my daughter, that you, that you go out with his young women. Otherwise, you might be bothered in another field. So she stayed close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law seven weeks from the beginning to the end of harvest. So for seven weeks, they've been, she's been gleaning, and Naomi, of course, offers the same protective advice to Ruth that Boaz has. And it appears now that Boaz has taken more than a passing interest in Ruth. Um, and so Naomi's beginning to see a hopeful solution to their problems. However, it has been seven weeks since they arrived in Bethlehem. And although their situation is better, they're still widows. They're still living on leftovers from the harvest. And Naomi's expectations that the living and the dead, meaning her, her husband's and son's name, uh, would benefit from Boaz's attraction to Ruth have not yet been met. And so the situation may be dire enough to justify the drastic measures that are going to take place next week in chapters <laughs> 3 and 4. Stay tuned as we... <laughs> as we, the cliffhanger, the beginning of the end to emptiness, <laughs> perfect timing. <laughs>